Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Welcome, Robert Parker. Welcome to... No, no, let's go back one. <laughs> take, take, take two. Take two. Take Welcome, two. Robert Joseph. <laughs> it's true. I, you know what? I get you guys really mixed up. So yeah, yeah, he's old. Um, I'm quite old. He's very old. I he's also... Old. I am fat and he's oh fatter. Okay? So he is American... <laughs> And older and fatter and richer. Okay, all of those. So just remember that. More famous, fatter, uh, richer, more American and older. So I don't get any of those. Oh my God. Okay, that was a fantastic <laughs> beginning. So okay. let's go back to the beginning. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. Uh, today I have Robert Joseph here in front of me. You're such a good sport. So I'm loving being here. Well, firstly, I'm loving being anywhere outside the UK because I haven't traveled. In so 2019, I traveled probably close on six months of that year, certainly five and a half, six months, including coming uh, here to Verona, I think twice. Um, last year, like everybody else, I traveled almost not at all, although the first two, three months I did. And so um, it's wonderful to be here in Verona. It's wonderful to catch up with, with friends, with other people, and certainly the Five Star Wines is an opportunity, as indeed is the Wine to Wine event uh, later in the year, where I just catch up with people, not just from Italy, but also from so Pedro Ballesteros. Uh, Torres has come in from Spain, who's a really good friend, um, who I love to see, and Bernard Bocci from, from France. And so, you know, I wouldn't get catch up with these people. So that that's really um, terrific. And, of course, my friends in the Italian industry, who um, I, just, I just love being here. Well, I, I mean, I guess the first thing that I, you know, listening to you say that, how many years have you been doing this? Tell me how you got into wine. I know you've probably said this to people, you know, people ask you this all the time. So the, the, the story that I was abducted by a group of Albanian gypsies who made wine is not true. Um, <laughs> but I've tried telling it over the years and it, it never quite works. So the real story is that I grew up, my parents accidentally, and this is true, actually ended up owning a hotel and restaurant in the south of England. Um, basically, they bought uh, a nice old building that they were going to convert into something else, and they didn't have much money, and the people who came in with investments said, well, we'll turn it into a smart hotel. My parents knew nothing about hotels or running hotels or anything stuff. So, um, and I, as an only child, grew up in this um, quite exciting place, not far from Gatwick Airport, we were in the days where this is politically incorrect, what I'm about to say. Um, but in those days, uh, if you wanted to be an air hostess, A, they um, looked at, they, they considered the way you looked, and B, at I think 30, you were retired. So, and we had uh, air crew staying in the hotel, and we had air crew working, um, moonlighting, working by the bar, and so This was not a bad place to grow up. I, I, I you know, and there was swimming pools and tennis courts and all this stuff, so it was quite nice. So, um, I, I grew up in that kind of world, and the wine, I, I was not great in the kitchen. Um, what I didn't understand was why people wanted the dish to taste the same as it had last time. I wanted to try something different every time, and the chefs didn't want me to do that, and the customers definitely didn't want me to do that. And that, by the way, is relevant to my view of wine today. 
I think that people, when they go and have a pizza margarita, want it to taste like a pizza margarita. And wine people actually want this vintage to be different. To, oh, it's so exciting. The, 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 this is. I don't know that most people see things that way. Um, I wasn't great in the bar, because remembering that it was seven gin and tonics and two whiskies rather than seven whiskies and two gin and tonics wasn't great. So that wasn't brilliant. And you know, eventually, the wine cellar, I, I gravitated there at an age which, I mean, if anyone listening in America, this is ludicrous because I was doing that at the age of 15 or 16, so that's like four, five or six years before it's legal to drink in the US. Um, and I was absolutely fascinated by these labels. I I, like lots of kids, I collected stamps um, a bit. And all these labels were like stamps, you know, they're all different. What does that mean? Why, why this one? Why is this more expensive? And the bottle shapes were pretty much the same, but the labels were varied. So, so you became obsessed. I became not obsessed, but, but quite interested. And I was able to taste the Italian uh, maitre d' in those days, and interested in that. And he, the leftovers at the end of the bottles I got to taste. And, you know, initially the first wines I can remember probably were so turn and some, 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 some sweet kraut child-pleasing wines. But, you know, little by little I got into that. And Hugh Johnson is my hero. Um, his first book called Wine, which is still a terrific book. It's, it's, it's old. It's from the 1960s, 70s. was the, the book that turned me on and the Wine Atlas that, that came out in the 70s after that. And I then went to live. I did a... Um, to improve my French before some exams, I did uh, two weeks in Charles Heidsieck Cellars in Champagne at about 15 or 16. And then at the age of um, around 20, I went to live in uh, Burgundy with my then girlfriend. I, th I went there for what I thought was going to be six months. I thought I'd learn everything about Burgundy in six months, and I ended up living there for about six years off and on. Uh, wow. And I, at the end of six years, I didn't learn everything about Burgundy. But, you know, oh, wow, okay. And then what happened? Um, the gypsies came back. <laughs> uh, that's going to make it difficult for you to edit that out. Right? No, I won't. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> um, no, basically, um, I had no money. I, I, most of my time in the Burgundy, I mean, the, when people talk about bottles of wine from Burgundy costing hundreds and hundreds of dollars, I just, even back in those days, things that, that, that people probably find hard to imagine, the, the, the shops where I would buy my food in Burgundy, the average person living in Bone, they weren't drinking Pinot Noir from the region. They were drinking stuff that came in litre bottles with stars around that you got a deposit back when you brought the bottle back. And the wine, by that time, probably wasn't Algerian anymore, but it came from anywhere. And you bought it by the alcoholic degree. So your 10% was more expensive than 9, and 11 was more than 10. And anyone who talks about the romantic past of wine, I can tell you that there were years when I was there in the beginning of the late 1970s, years like 1977, for example, horrible, horrible vintage, um, people were picking grapes at 8% natural sugar. And then they were putting in 3 or 4% in, in, in added sugar. And the beautiful thing about those days was that, because legally you can only put 2%, of sugar. So, but of course, how do you do that? So the, 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 the local supermarkets were full of sugar at that time of the year. And so, because you had to buy your sugar from the official place. So you, everyone was buying sugar and then, oh oui, c'est le moment de l'année où on fait de la confiture. It's jam making time. And by the way, if you've never done this, anybody who, who's never 
being in a cellar when you are chaptalizing the wine. In other words, you've got this fermenting vat of ripe or not very ripe grapes. And then you put in the bag of sugar and the smell. It's like the best jam factory in the world. It's just glorious. The whole place suddenly exposed with that great, wonderful, and in Pinot Noir it's raspberry, but if you're down in Bordeaux, which they were doing it every year as well. Um, anyway, so uh, I've digressed a bit, but I, was, I wanted to write about wine. I was going to write a book about Burgundy, and then um, a man called Anthony Hansen um, very annoyingly wrote the book about Burgundy that I was going to write, and he did it far better than I would have done it. Um, and so, okay, I wasn't going to do that. So, I, I, But I was invited to come and start to work on a magazine, having already contributed a few articles to a trade magazine, a trade magazine that was called Wine and Spirit, and it was edited by somebody um, called Jancis Robinson. I don't know what's happened to her since then, um, but anyway, she was editing that then. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I then came back to the UK and started a magazine called Wine International, or it was called What Wine then. And then we ran a competition, not a competition, we ran an article um, in 1984 where we just got a few English, English wines, not sparkling wines in those days, few English wines to compare with wines from other places, all white wines. And we got as many, we had no budget, but, but we got as many um, tasters with foreign names living in London that we could get. Um, we didn't have to pay them anything. But the English wines actually did incredibly well. This was a big surprise to everyone. And, you know, essentially we got a lot of coverage and so on. And, but when we published that, I don't know what we were going to call it, but my publisher at the time, said whatever title we'd given it wasn't very good. And he said, you should give it a punchy title. So we called it the International Wine Challenge. There were like 54 wines. It wasn't a big deal. It was in the basement of a pub that we did it. But that actually became a competition. And then it grew and eventually became the biggest wine competition in the world. And I then went on to do it in places including Thailand and Vietnam and Russia and India and Japan and Poland and, you know, anywhere really. So out of all of the places in which you have tasted and written and talked and all the things that you've done, what, where, what's your favorite, uh, your favorite country? I mean, do you base it on the, your favorite kinds of wines, uh, you know, Italy? So, so here I am sitting in Verona. So, you know, the obvious answer. Well, that's the right? obvious now, answer. If, if I were in Buenos Aires, you know, what, was I, what, what, what would I say? Um, I, I am promiscuous. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I basically, uh, I lived in Burgundy, as I said, so Pinot Noir is my wife, but Grenache is my mistress. Oh. And if I want to go out having fun, um, Grenache is probably where I'll go, because I, I now produce wine in, in the Languedoc. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the, so we produce Pinot Noir down there, which tastes nothing like Burgundy. The things I learned about was don't own vineyards if you can avoid it. Um, so, um, especially if you haven't got any money, it's a good reason not to own vineyards. So uh, what I wanted to do, um, this is at the beginning of the, 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 in 2005, I was fascinated in the success of New World brands, the, the Mondavis and the Penfolds and so on, and they were doing very well in the UK particularly. And I wanted to know why, um, why don't we have French brands? Why don't we have Italian and Spanish brands? And yeah, we have a few. We have Antonori, we have Torres and so on, but not very many. And they're not brands very, very often in the way of those New World brands. And I thought, why couldn't one have a French brand? Um, and 
Um, so we didn't have any money, as I said, but, and I didn't know how to make wine, which was another problem, really. Uh, and I'd never run a business of that kind. But apart from that, I was pretty set up for this. So um, I found somebody who was a very clever winemaker who'd been what they call a flying winemaker, who'd made wine in, in, in about 17 countries. So, um, so then that solved the winemaking side. And I found a label designer because I'd already I'd done a book on wine labels and I understood that the label was going to be important and I couldn't afford to pay a wine label designer. So we made the label designer a partner. So Kevin Shaw had done the label for Hendrix Gin already and he was a superstar designer. So I had Hugh Ryman, the winemaker, Kevin Shaw, the designer. So that, that's two starts. So then we needed to find somewhere to make the wine. And the, what we needed to do was to find somewhere where we could make a lot, of, a lot of wine and maybe make more, so volume and scalability, that had the international grapes that people understood. So I needed Chardonnay and Cabernet and so on. And people who would understand what we were trying to do. And uh, we looked around and we found this wonderful setup um, called uh, Jean Delibert. It's a set of cooperatives. Uh, near the wonderful old kind of Disney, um, Westeros-type uh, town of Carcassonne. And they understood immediately what we were doing, which was, because the, the, Minervois, sadly, which is a fabulous, fabulous place to make wine with, with vineyards and heights. The, the, the altitudes go from 50 meters above the sea to about 300 meters, and there's winds coming every which way, and there's every kind of soil and every kind of grape going. Um, but Minervois is hard to sell, or hard to sell for a, for a good price, unless you're a small estate, and some of those do very well, and brilliant wine, some of them. But we came along and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to make a branded wine. And we called it uh, Le Grand Wine. It's got a big black sheep on the label. And the idea was that we were kind of standing aside from the herd. And we started off with a Cabernet Syrah, or Cabernet Shiraz, which was the, the Australian blend. Um, which I love that combination of grapes, and it's what Bordeaux used to do a long time ago. And then Chardonnay, you can make very good Chardonnay in Limoux down the road from us, but it tastes a bit like Burgundy, and, I, and it doesn't necessarily taste like great Burgundy, but it tastes good like good Burgundy. But I wanted to do something a little bit different, so, and I didn't want to make um, New World Chardonnay. So what we do is we blend Chardonnay from two or three different sites within the region with some Viognier. We do about 15% Viognier in it. And from the beginning, the concept was what we say in, in uh, the expression that won't make much sense to most consumers, and we don't talk about the consumers news about it, but we call it a vin des terroirs. So it's not a vin de terroir. Every wine we make is from a minimum, I'd say, of three different sites, and probably five on average. And that is, does two things. One is it enables us to keep the freshness uh, from using the high, uh, higher altitude sites. Um, so we get a, a fresh start. So none of our wines is over, ever over about 13.2, 13 13.5% alcohol, which is not always easy at this in these days. So we can keep the alcohol level. We are making wine that tastes pretty much the same every vintage. Back to the, my pizza margarita that I was talking about earlier. Um, and because the, the, the cooperatives we're working with have got a lot of land, we've been able to build up production. So now we have 15 different wines. So we've got a Sauvignon, a Malbec, and um, a Pinot Noir that, does, that, that, that is, is pretty, but the, a GSM, the Grenache Syrah Mauvais, um, which is probably my favorite because of my, the Grenache um, part of it, if you like. But we're always playing with new things and new styles. And we're doing um, the better part of, what, 3.8 million bottles now, wow. which we sell in about 
60 countries. So we are, I've just learned in the last week, we are the number one French brand in India. The Indian market isn't that big, but it's still quite nice. And we sell a lot in Russia and a lot. And and it's just fun. And I've learned a huge amount that I didn't know as a journalist. Um, So I now do consultancy. Um, and I love that. I love working with, we've worked with the Bordeaux Chateau recently, but I'm working with the country of Moldova and so on. And um, trying to work back from the consumer to the wine, um, as well as saying, yes, we've got these grapes and these vineyards. But the wine industry tends to start with the, I'm making this, how do we make people buy it? And actually, it may be quite hard sometimes to do that. And you may have to say, well, what is it that they want to buy? Or what is it we can make them want to buy? And how do we bring these things together? Wow, you sound very busy. Very busy. I shouldn't. I, sh- I haven't got the time to be. I, I should go now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, the, the wine production, you know, the writing, the, the, the tasting, you, you know, you just did five-star wines. Like, uh, what's next for you? Do you have any plans for... Are you going to be starting anything new this yes, year? Yes, yes, I'm very me. excited. I've got a project in Georgia, okay, um, which is really exciting. I have two separate projects in, in Georgia, um, and um, which I think is, is an exciting country, which a lot of people have, uh, now know about. It, it seems to be one of the go-to um, places for a lot of people. Um, so that's, 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 and I would have been there last year, but because of the, 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 the pandemic, I couldn't. Um, and I've got some really quite interesting uh, consultancy things coming up. It's just, I think, the wine industry is such a fascinating uh, world full of some of the most fabulous, intel- super intelligent people. Um, but a lot of them actually are financially struggling. And to me, um, there's far too many people who are rushed to say, well, why does that wine cost so much? How can any wine cost so much? And you say, well, how much did you pay to go and watch Milan um, play Manchester City the other day? You know, how much did you pay for that T-shirt? And people don't seem to get as exercised about some of the prices of the other things they buy or, or a meal in a restaurant or whatever. And I think we have to be, I mean, my wines are, are very at the affordable level. We're in the US, we're about $10, $12 a bottle. So we're not at the super premium end. But even at that price, we're probably a lot more expensive than many of the wines out there. And I'd love to be making some wine at 15 to 20, and, and we will be. But it's actually trying to bring together the culture. It, it, what wine is, to me, it is agriculture, it's art. There is a spiritual side, but it's also a business, and I don't think we should be frightened of that. So, I just, uh, you reminded me of something a moment ago when you were talking about Georgia for your next big project. Uh, I've been reading a lot about orange wines in Georgia. Is that something that you're... Yeah, I mean, what they would call Kvevri, because of that's the name for the amphora. Um, yes, but I think that this is, is fascinating because I think there's a huge... We have this one four-letter word beginning with W, wine. And it covers everything from... The bottle of Burgundy that I read about the other day that was like $43,000, $47,000 or something. For, you know, it's just stupid amounts of money, but it's just a bottle of liquid, down to something that we could buy for 50 Because I go to the bulk wine fair every year, and it's 50 cents a liter for, for perfectly drinkable stuff. And it's all made from grapes. It's all called wine. 
Now, within all that, you've got now we used to have red and white and sweet and fortified and sparkling. Now we've got another color. We've got orange. So I first went to Georgia in 1989 when the Soviet Union was still going, and I tasted my first Kvevri orange wine then, and I didn't understand it at all. And I've tasted a lot in the years since. Um, and I think it's fascinating. It isn't what most people necessarily want to drink every day. It, it, it's any more than most people want to drink sherry every day necessarily, or, or um, a sauterne, or whatever. I think it's, it's another addition, it's another color on the palette that you can use if you're painting uh, your paintings. But I think that the, what we've got to understand is where it fits. And so what I'm trying to do, because um, orange wine in, in Georgia is what, as you've mentioned, you've heard about it, it's about, it was about 2%, it's about 5% of Georgian wine. You know, there's 95% of, of the wine that is not in, um, and when we talk about um, orange wine, of course the, the red wine that's in the amphora isn't orange, it's just red wine that's been uh, left on its skins for a long time. Um, I think the future we're going to see, uh, and I think this is very exciting to me, um, we're going to see the use of orange wine, wine that's been fermented on its skins, as, in a, as a blending component. And we're, uh, that's one of the things I'm playing with, where you're actually saying, right, we've got a wine that's been in stainless steel, or wine that could have been with oak, or whatever, and you're putting a certain percentage of skin contact wine in it, which adds interesting flavors and complexity and so on. Whether we're going to see a future in which there's going to be a lot, I mean, really large volumes of skin contact wine, I'm not so sure. Hmm. Well, you know what? I have to say, I'm I'm quite humbled because <laughs> I I I wasn't expecting to get to interview you today. And I wasn't expecting to be interviewed by I you know, today, but I'm I delighted know. to. to I'm be doing delighted this. as well, and honestly, I know what's going to happen. I'm gonna I'm gonna go home, and I'm going to look up. Uh, all about, you know, I'm going to search Robert Joseph and then I'm going to be like, oh boy. Well, then you can actually, the, 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 I think that the, the previous, <coughs> the, the clubhouse session that we did here with Stevie Kim on celebrity wines, uh, where I found myself defending um, celebrity wines against um, some quite vigorous um, feelings against them by, by a very uh, distinguished uh, American journalist um, based here in Italy who who hates them uh, as a concept, and so um yeah go go listen to that. It's quite no, fun. I did. I edited. It. I I do recall it. Um, and I've seen you know obviously I've 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 read things that you've written. I've seen your photo a bunch of times, and I've listened to you on Clubhouse, and I'm exposed to you constantly, but I've never met you before. It, it's, it's it's I think it's, like, being exposed to me is not something I would recommend <laughs> to anyone. Well, you know, I can tell you now that it, it's been a pleasure, and I appreciate you doing this interview so much. And, um, yeah, I, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time. Are you going to opera wine? I'm definitely going to opera wine. I mean, the setting. I mean, Verona is just um, one of the most extraordinary places, as anyone who's ever been here knows, and the other people who haven't been here will probably guess. And to actually see the opera in the setting of the Colosseum, the arena here, I can't imagine not wanting to go to that. So, um, yes. Um, but this is just, I think that the Italians, I think anyone who lives here is very lucky. I think, you know, so you're surrounded by uh, wonderful scenery um, around around the city, but there's also the, the ancient buildings. And um, there are, I think it's lived in. 
the Piazza Abbey where I was last night, you know, this is a place where the buildings go back hundreds and hundreds of years, but they're not museums. People are living them. People, people are having lunch and dinner in buildings that people had lunch and oh, dinner it's in wonderful. 400 years the ago. The city is absolutely, I can't, you know, podcast aside, I, I came here by accident and I don't want to leave. I absolutely love it. It's no, I get that. Robert Joseph, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.